This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com national editor, Matt Myers. We've got uh, some interesting podcast news tonight. Let's start with, I have a fancy new microphone. Hopefully this all sounds better than it had in the past. And we've got, at the end of the show, what I think is a really entertaining and unique guest that I'm uh, very excited for you to hear about. I'm not even going to tell you who it is yet. You're just you're just going to have to wait and see. Um, first, you know, Matt and I do have some things to talk about, as we've said a couple of times. Not a statcast focused show at the moment. It's just trying to get to some fun and interesting baseball stories. There's actual news to start off with. Uh, no Syndergaard's Tommy John surgery we'll talk about. The year that Barry Bonds hit 95 home runs, sort of. Uh, unpopular baseball opinions and some random fandom notes. Matt, Noah Syndergaard is out for the year. Were you, I don't know, I guess you have to be surprised because probably no one's even throwing right now. But is the, the timing of this weird for you in any way? Uh, I guess a little bit. Um, it's sort of weird to think that, you know, opening day was supposed to be two days from now. So like imagine like in like the the world of, you know, uh, Mets fans sort of like cynicism. If this had happened, like where they were going to the season, like, oh, like we're going to be good this year. Like lots to be, to be excited about. And then two days, two days before the season, it was said like, oh, by the way, no, Senegar is going to have <laughs> um, Tommy John surgery. So in a weird way, it's like, it could have been worse, I guess, from a Mets fan perspective. Um, it sounds like he had some soreness and got, you know, got a bunch of opinions and then decided now. I mean, obviously, there's it's like a little bit. I mean, I, I do wonder if, if the season was happening, if he was going to would try and pitch through it. But, you know, obviously, the season's going to be delayed. There's so much uncertainty. And maybe he just sort of, I don't know if calculated risk is the right word, but just was like, hey, you know what? Like. This is probably going to happen at some point. Better I do it now before an abridged season when I'm going to be a free agent after next season and I can kind of, you know, maybe like uh, reestablish myself uh, next year. Yeah, there's something poetic in a twisted way, I guess, about his surgery taking place on what literally should have been opening day on March 26th. Um, It was reported today that he had been feeling discomfort, you know, during the spring. It's not like he just up and out of nowhere said, hey, this sounds fun. Let's go do this. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to know, like if the season had gone forth as it was originally scheduled, if he tries to pitch through it, if he blows out in July or not at all. And then I guess if you think through the, the timing implications, so obviously he will miss all of whatever will remain of the 2020 season and the early part of next season, which I guess, you know, since we don't know how much, if at all of baseball, we'll see this year, there's, there's sort of a strategic element to it, I guess. I mean, not that I think that, you know, Chris Sale and Noah Syndergaard and Luis Severino are taking that into account too much. But, you know, it's interesting to see that these three big guys are all going to miss uh, whatever baseball we have. And then I, I wonder, you know, when camps start, you know, coming back up, there'll probably be an abbreviated spring training. You worry about pitchers trying to, you know, really get themselves back in game shape 
um, super quickly? And will we see like a rash of Tommy John surgeries as like a third level impact of, you know, the obviously far more serious pandemic? I guess we won't know, right? We won't, we won't know until we know. Um, but it's, it's one of those things you can't really plan for because when have we ever seen anything like this? Definitely uh, uncharted territory. And I think that like, I mean, it's, I mean, Syndergaard's a weird one, right? Because, you know, just like, let's, you know, let's kind of like uh, forget about what's going on and kind of just go straight into like the baseball aspect of it. Um, he's always been a pitcher. Like there's definitely this belief that like, he's like on the cusp. There's always like, he feels like he's on the cusp of just being a little bit more than he's been in terms of results because the performance has always like been good and it just feels like he should be more dominant than he is just because of how hard he throws. And like when he's on, he's as can be as dominant as any pitcher in the game, but it always feels like you're left wanting a little bit more. Um, and it's sort of always, always been hard to kind of like pinpoint it. And I think that like, um, you know, this isn't the same to me from a, from a, uh, two things from like a, a Mets perspective too. If it's a shortened season, the impact of any one player is just sort of lessened one and two, it's not like it's, this isn't DeGrom. Um, this is a player who has, for like a variety of reasons, and I'll get to one of my theories in a minute, but I want to hear your take, is like just not exactly been as good as you think he should be. And so I think that like, you know, especially in like, a, um, I mean, obviously, you know, whatever expectations you have of the Mets, it definitely dings them. But like, I don't think this like makes them... Uh, irrelevant uh when 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 games pick up again no absolutely not i mean it's we i think we talked about them a couple weeks ago that you know even though they are the mets and everything that entails um they they are still incredibly talented right the projections always love them each year even though things seem to fall apart and and i guess what i keep going back to is like down the stretch last year the mets played pretty well right the last two months they they played you know decently and that will end up being the only time that they had, so they had traded for Stroman, right? And that was when their rotation had, you know, DeGrom, Syndergaard, Stroman, Wheeler, and Matt. And that obviously is never going to happen again. Wheeler left, and now Syndergaard's hurt. And if the season comes back, that probably means that Michael Waka and Rick Porcello are all each going to be in the rotation. I mean, that's a sizable step down for me. I mean, it really feels like that fivesome that they had last year when they had Wheeler and Stroman, um, that was like the peak rotation and that I guess opportunity has been lost and, and you can't really get that back, especially because obviously Wheeler's gone. For sure. And I mean, in many ways, I think like, you know, the, the biggest question for the Mets long term is sort of like to get way ahead of ourselves. is like the 2021 rotation is because right now, because Stroman's a free agent after this year and um, Porcello and Waka, who are sort of their rotation insurance are on one year deals. So right now the, like, they're the only sort of like established big league pitchers they have for 2021 are DeGrom and Maps. So that is like a, you know, that sort of like is a, it's a huge question mark for beyond next year. But I don't think the Mets are really worried about that at this point because, you know, there's, there will be other free agents available and, you know, there's a lot of different things that can happen for 2020, for 2020, whatever, whenever the season begins, obviously not having, Syndergaard is huge. I mean, if you look at like, you know, what's, what's crazy about it is, I mean, his ERA on his face, is, like last year was 303 um, from, an, you know, expected weighted on base, you know, where we judge quality of contact, um, including walks and strikeouts. He's, you know, he's elite. In 2019, it was, um, his expected weight on base was 280. 
The year before it was 268. The year before that, 279, 266, where league average is what, like about like 320. So from expected outcome standpoint, he's about as good as anyone. I mean, the 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 reason the, the weird thing that I think holds him back, and I think this is sort of like kind of old school, but I think it's it's legitimate, is his complete inability to hold runners. And he's like now become so extreme that it's almost like kind of comical. And I think that if you don't watch him or pay attention to this, you probably don't even realize it. But over the last three, the last two years, he's allowed 74 stolen bases and only six caught stealings. And the 74 stolen bases against number two in baseball over that same span has allowed 39 stolen bases. So he's allowed almost twice as many stolen bases as any other pitcher in baseball. And I think that like kind of manifests itself in a variety of like kind of like micro ways that just chip away at his value a little bit in a way that like if he was just kind of average, he would be like a Cy Young level pitcher. But I think that like in, when it comes to, especially in the division the Mets playing where there's actually a, few, a, a couple of teams, their, their, their chief competitors, namely the Nationals and the Braves have some really good base dealers. Like when he pitches against those teams, when, when anytime Trey Turner gets on base, it's like a double. Adam Eaton gets on base, it's like a double. And it just, it really builds on itself in a way that like it doesn't really for almost any other any other pitcher in the game. And to be fair, if you look at the top five of stolen bases allowed the last two years, three of them are Mets. So clearly their catchers are not very good at this, but like he's in a whole other stratosphere of like being poor, being, it's a combination of like bad catchers, but him just being slow to the plate him having a slow move to first and him not really doing anything to vary his, his pace to the plate to the the runner. And it all kind of adds up. And I think that like it has really shipped away at like his overall value and potential dominance. Yeah. I think I've heard a bunch of people say over the years, like, Oh, you know, he's, he's never quite as dominant as you would expect uh, his talent level to be. And if he just got traded to a team like the Astros or somebody, they would unleash him like they did with Garrett Cole and, you know, maybe, but, I think that sort of undersells the Mets a little bit. I mean, it's not like Jacob deGrom didn't turn from being a college shortstop into being maybe the best pitcher in baseball. And when you look at, uh, you know, the the underlying pitch characteristics of Syndergaard, yes, obviously the velocity is incredible, but his fastball is really straight, you know, like it's got some sync to it. It doesn't, it doesn't have like, you know, this untapped spin. It's actually got low spin. I don't think he's the kind of guy like Cole where he's got, you know, just, high spin that's not used properly that never really seemed like his game and velocity is great but if it's straight velocity without you know enough behind it to you know get over the hitters bat it's kind of hard to get strikeouts so i'm not saying this is the best possible version that we've seen but i also don't think that it's some other team would have made him instantly better and you know like you said now it doesn't necessarily matter for this year he is let's see 27 now so he'll be pushing 29 when he comes back. There's still plenty of time to come back from that. But yeah, it's, it's pretty disappointing. You always just kind of wanted to see him and DeGrom being this like two-headed pitching superhero. And it never quite seemed to, to get there. And now it's like Marcus Stroman's got to be your number two pitcher. I like Marcus Stroman. He hasn't really been there for a couple years now. You know, that's that's a lot of pressure. Yeah, no. It's And also, I mean, there was it was, it was kind of funny in, in like spring training there with the Mets, there was this whole conversation of like, well, you know, like, you know, Walk and Porcello were like both said Michael Walk and Rick Porcello were like, Well, I was signed to be a starter. And every time they're asked, they're like, I was told I was a starter when I signed. And like these things with pitchers, they it always kinds of work work themselves out. And once again, it seems like this is it's going to work itself out. And that like, you know, now the depth is, you know, 
some is like Walker Lockett and David Peterson, like an unproven prospect. So, yeah, um, or pull up Seth Lugo, you know, <laughs> exactly. So, um, it definitely changes, you know, the, the scope of any projections, but also, I mean, like it, the, the uncertainty surrounding how many games we'll play and what the season will look like. It's sort of, it's, a, it's really hard to pinpoint just how significant this injury is. Yeah. One last thing on that is obviously we don't know how many games the season will be, but one thing we do know is that the fewer games there are, uh, the, the more possibilities open up, you know, like the Marlins are very unlikely to be the best team in the East over 162, but over 60, like you could see that happening. And that, that means this is a huge loss for the Mets, you know, cause this is one of their big cogs uh, because it opens it up to some other teams to, you know, you can't really just out talent teams over fewer games. Um, let's get stupid. I mean, you know, stupider, stupider than usual. Uh, do you remember uh, when, I guess, let's see, I, I was in college and maybe you had just graduated college when Barry Bonds broke the all-time single season home run record by hitting 95 home runs? Um, it doesn't really ring a bell. <laughs> or when he hit exactly 1,000 career home runs and did not set the all-time record because Hank Aaron actually hit 1,012. This happened. I Sounds vaguely familiar. So what we did was uh, had a little fun, went to, I uh, wrote an article about this, by the way, the season Barry Bonds hit 95 home runs. I thought it was fun. You should check it out. Uh, Barry Bonds played his entire career in three pitcher-friendly ballparks, three rivers in Pittsburgh, uh, a candlestick in San Francisco, and then the current park that has had various names over the years in San Francisco as well. And the, the current one, obviously, extremely pitcher-friendly. So when he had uh, 73 home runs in 2001, or when he had the best ever hitting season in 2002, when he had an OPS plus of 268, he was at somewhat of a disadvantage because he was doing that in pitcher-friendly ballparks. So what I thought would be kind of a fun trick to do is if you go over to baseballreference.com, wonderful website, they have a way to translate any hitter's uh, season or career line to pretty much any other environment you want. For example, you could change those numbers from 2002 in Pac Bell Park or Oracle Park or whatever it was called at the time to, let's say, 1999 Coors Field or 2000 Coors Field. So that's what I did. 2000 Coors Field is the highest run scoring environment in modern baseball history. Excuse me, I went with 1999 Coors Field. 6.3 runs per game uh, at Coors Field 99. So Obviously, home runs were flying everywhere in 1999. Coors Field, everybody knows about it. But especially that version of Coors Field did not yet have the humidor installed. So that was even more of a pinball environment. Um, on the other end, 1968 Dodger Stadium was the hardest place to score in modern history. 3.1 runs a game, half of Coors Field 1999. So uh, there's a lots of fancy math on how they do this. That is, it's not worth going into in detail. But let me give you some insane numbers. In 2002, which I said was the best ever hitting season based on uh, OPS Plus, Barry Bonds, this is a real line. This is not made up. He actually did this. 370, 582, 799 with an OPS of 1381. That's real. I haven't even gotten to the stupid part yet. He did that in a pitcher-friendly ballpark. You take that line, you convert it to 1999 Coors Field. Uh, I couldn't even do this in a video game. 441, 651, 949 with an OPS of 1600. Um, now, it should be stated, huge caveats here. They're not trying to adjust for the course field effect, the difficulty of playing on the road, 
or you know different variations in pictures over there's any of that stuff it's literally just hey here's a park effect uh and also a, a year effect obviously 1999 was a high offensive year 1968 was not uh, let's let's put it in and see what comes out so his actual 2001 where he hit 73 home runs and you move it to 1999 course field 95 home runs 199 rbis it's it's insane um if you look at park factors on a scale where 100 is average over 100 is better for hitting right uh in in 2002 san francisco's park factor was 93 so it was better for pitching uh course field in 1999 125 so uh park effects and and you know just the year environment and look at the last few years right 2019 way different from 2015 or 2014 this this stuff matters and it's fun to look back through the years and see how different players may have performed under uh, different circumstances. The the mid-90s Rockies is like the perfect the perfect test case because you can go and look at some of their players in that time and look at like the raw stat lines they were putting up and then look at like the, you know, the the park adjusted numbers. Like for example, in 1995, Dante Bichette, who finished second in the MVP voting that year, hit 340, 364, 620, but that was only good enough for an OPS plus of 130, which is still good, but it's still like only 30% better than than league average when he's slugging 620. The next year he had 313, 359, 531, and he was it was 112. And then 1997, it was 308, 343, 510, and it was 103. So it was basically league, that was basically a league average performance. So it gives you a sense of like the offensive environment of that time, but also course field pre-humidor was just like bananas and i think we kind of because it's like course field in general is still kind of like an outlier but we kind of forget just how ridiculous it was before the humidor that it's like it's a it's almost hard to comprehend the types of games that were played there at that time in, in 1999 four different rockies hit at least 33 home runs that was the year larry walker hit 379 458 and 710 four rockies hit 33 home runs and the pitching staff allowed a 603 team era <laughs> Um, it's it's just really funny. You can kind of go through this uh, with this fun tool. If you look at the article I posted, I actually went uh, into MLB The Show 20, the video game, and I made a Barry Bonds and I made him in purple just to show what it would look like. And I got to tell you, some Giants fans were not pleased by that. It caused them actual physical pain, which I apologize for. Um, and then if you look at the career lines, if you take every single one of his seasons and you convert that to 2000 Coors Field, excuse me, 1999 Coors Field, you would get... 1,000 home runs even, uh, which is like a very satisfying number. And then also <laughs> not the record because Hank Aaron would have still had him beat by a dozen if he'd had the chance to play in 1999, of course, field. Um, none of this means anything. It's it's a fun tool and just kind of a wacky way to go through and see how things might have been different. Um, but now I just, I wish we'd had the chance to see Barry Bonds do that. And, and I got to be honest, I know he's 56, I think. Um the Rockies should sign him like now today, right? He, I don't, I know he'd be at a, a, just a wreck uh, in left field there, but he'd be their third or fourth best header right now. <laughs> I will say when I, when I read your piece, I learned something, um, something that like I was, I was kind of surprised by. So, you know, 2001 is famously the year where Barry Bonds broke the home run record. Hit 73 home runs, broke the previous record, which had been 70 set by Mark McGuire in 1998. What's interesting about that year is that it is the only year in Barry Bonds' career where he hit uh, more than 50 home runs. His previous career high was 49, which he had hit the year before in 2000, and he never topped again later in his career. But 
I'd always thought that, you know, I always used to think like, oh, well, actually, but his best season is actually 2004, which is when he was intentionally walked 120 times, um, which is just kind of silly just to think about. But I was wrong and I didn't even realize it, that actually when you adjust for, when you use LPS Plus or Weighted Runs Created Plus, whichever your preference is, they both tell you the same thing, that when adjusted for league and park factors, Barry Bond's best season is actually 2002. His OPS Plus was 268 um, the year before in 2001 when he set the home run record was 259. And in 2004, when he had 232 walks, it was 263. You know, as they say, you learn something new every day. And I thought that was interesting. I had not, I had not realized that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the walks, by the way, because there's one enormous flaw in this whole thing, which is like, let's say that this actually was something that, that could have happened. Uh, Barry Bond still wouldn't have hit 95 home runs because he would have been walked like 400 times intentionally. If you had peak Barry Bonds in 1999 with Coors Field, w- would you ever throw him a pitch? Like even once? I, I can't imagine that you would. It probably would not be worth it. Even even when, I mean, that was, I mean, that's how good he, he was in that period um, where basically he'd get like one pitch a game to hit and he'd smoke it somewhere, either off the wall or over the fence. Well, I, now we have a, a, a task for the 2020 Colorado Rockies. Please sign Barry Bonds. Bring him out right now. Um, <laughs> that's probably not a very popular baseball opinion. You had pointed out to me early, earlier that, um, who was it, Craig Calcaterra was tweeting about having unpopular baseball opinions, and uh, this is the place for unpopular baseball opinions. I think I know what yours is going to be, and I got to say, it is absolute garbage, so hit me with it. Well, perfect. I, I enjoyed Calcaterra's piece, and his unpopular opinion, I'll, I'll say, was that he thinks double doubleheaders stink. Um, his point was that doubleheaders are usually bad baseball. The teams usually try and rush through one of the games. Instead of getting like one really good game, you usually get two kind of shoddy games and it's just kind of like a long day that most people don't really actually want to sit through. And I think that argument probably has some merit, although I, in my last podcast I talked about going, the first game I remember is a doubleheader that I went to at the age of six and it being like the greatest day of my life. So, you know, your mileage may vary, as I say. But my unpopular opinion is actually that pitcher wins don't really bother me. I know it's become like a, especially in like saber circles where it's like, oh, wins are stupid, kill the win, you know, never look at wins. And to be clear, I don't think they're a good analytical tool. I wouldn't use them to say, oh, pitcher A had a better season than pitcher B. I don't think wins are good in that regard. I think pitcher wins are in a single season, a really good storytelling tool. And I think that that has a lot of value. Like I look at, you know, Jacob deGrom's like 20 years from now, someone could look at Jacob deGrom's 2018 season and say 1.70 ERA won the signing award and had 10 wins. He was 10 and nine. Like, and you're just like, what happened there? Like that, there's a story there. I want to know, I want to figure out exactly how that season played out. Cause there's some weirdness there. Right. And I think that's cool. And like, you want to know, like, it's just like the Mets were just like comically bad at scoring runs when he pitched. And there's all sorts of crazy stats that speak to like his crazy dominance and the Mets complete inability to score when he pitched and that's just kind of like a good you know like to me that's just like a fun little thing to sort of help you tell the story of baseball whereas like if he'd been like 15 and 8 like and won the Cy Young no one would really think twice about it so it's just sort of like you know I enjoy that little kind of silliness that helps you tell the story of a baseball season with pitcher wins so that's one and then two I think like on a career level like pitcher wins are like without having to explain like war, you know, pitcher wins are at least like a rough, a very rough estimate of like, okay, he had a quality career. Like if you won a hundred games in the big leagues, 
like you were a reasonably good pitcher. You had like that you had like some level of longevity and success, and that's pretty significant. And then if you won two hundred games, well, like you had a really good career. You know, there's only a hundred and eighteen pitchers in Major League history who've won two hundred games. Like that's kind of crazy, you know. And they're all like you run the list. There's no like chumps on that list. So while it's not necessarily like a, a good barometer, like oh, like really getting nitty gritty on on pitcher value, and I would never argue that it is. When you're looking for like a quick and dirty, like overall, like oh, like oh, he won 150 big league games, or he won 100 big league games. It's like okay, that like that that tells me something without having to like explain wins above replacement. Which like because that's the thing for pitchers, there's like not necessarily a ton of like for counting stat perspective, it's not necessarily that easy the way it is with hitters, where there's a bunch of different like you know, hits, home runs, RBIs, run scored, where you could easily kind of like explain to people the different like benchmarks someone hit to explain longevity and and success. Remember at the top when I said that this was the StatCast podcast, but we're obviously not going to get stat heavy. Uh, now you're out here standing for pitcher wins. <laughs> well, that's, and that's, like, that's why I don't feel like it's actually like a hot take because it's not like I'm like, Oh, like I'm, I'll ride and die for the pitcher win. I'm just sort of like they don't bother me. I think that like they're a good storytelling tool and they're like a good quick and dirty way of like identifying a pitcher's career value. All right, I've got I've got two potentially unpopular baseball opinions. Um, the first one is that the cycle is completely useless. I get it; it's it's supposed to be a fun thing. I get no joy whatsoever from the cycle. I re- I don't. I would rather see three home runs, just three hits, than you know a single, a double, a triple because. You know, it's not always the most uh, valuable combination of things you can do. But then also, you know, sometimes you you have guys trying to get the thing for the cycle when it's not even, you know, the best thing for the game. I, I know that makes me uh, a buzzkill and a killjoy, but I, I got nothing. The, the cycle just gives me nothing at all. Thoughts? I, I, don't, I don't really disagree. You know, it's just sort of like it, it, for that same reason. It's like, you know a three homer game is way more valuable and generally gets less attention. You know, there's that, um, it's got that, I guess that there's something sort of, uh, it, it appeals to, I think to the OCD and some people just like the idea of like getting like a, one of each. What I, what I always want to see is I always want to see the out cycle. Someone who gets thrown out at all four bases in a game. That's what I really want to see. I had an old colleague who said he'd once seen it in a minor league game. And that's what I would really like to see. Someone who at least. I want to see, uh, I want to see whatever the baseball version of the old Gordy Howe hat, tri- uh, hat trick is. Do you know that one? A goal, an assist, and a fight? Yeah. <laughs> so, like, let's say it's Puig, right? A home run, uh, an assist at the home plate, and then a fight. That, that would be great. I want to see that. Uh, the other opinion I have, and I guess as I think through this in my head, I'm not sure this would be unpopular, maybe with, maybe with a certain segment of fans. So... You throw a pitch, right? And let's freeze time while the pitch is halfway through the plate. Think about the outcomes that can happen here. Uh, the ball can be hit into play, you know, either in play or a home run. That's great. It could be a, a strike, which advances the count. It could be a ball, which advances the count. All fine. Or what's the remaining option? It could be a foul. Now, if there's not two strikes, the foul could advance the count, so that's fine. I I would like there to be a foul out rule. I'm over, you know. 19 fouls or whatever Alex Cora had that, you know what I mean? Like that's one of the things, anytime there's a foul, you have to wait for the ball to go up and go down and, and nothing has, nothing has progressed. That's, I think that's what it gets down to for me. I'm fine with fouls being strikes, strike one and strike two. Uh, but then every pitch should have some amount of progress in, in moving the game forward. 
you know, and foul after foul after foul, uh, it doesn't do anything. It's, it's static, you know? So I don't know what the number is. Maybe it's after you get to two strikes, you get two fouls. I don't, I don't know what the right number is, but I don't, I don't like indefinite fouls. I think everything has to be doing something to at least move the game forward. Is that unpopular? Did you ever play, did you ever play pickup games or like stickball? We used to play four fouls in a row. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, even, even in, like adult softball, which I've been playing for 20 years, it's, it's two fouls and you're out. I understand that Major League Baseball is not adult softball or, or pickup games. Um, but even so, I, I feel like that is that is something that, I don't know, maybe I'm saying it without having done any research and it, it wouldn't actually make any impact whatsoever. Maybe it's like the intentional, uh, the auto intentional walk. But I feel like that could be reasonably well received. Uh, you know, who, who loves watching all those fouls? I don't. That's what it is. There's like, there's like three or four at bats a year where it's like, you know, it's, it's sort of like, it's kind of like, I think it's become kind of like position players pitching once or twice a year. It ends up being entertaining either because like the position player is so bad at pitching or so good at pitching that it's like interesting, but most of the time it's just kind of lame. And I think that's kind of the same way where it's like, you know, there's those few moments a year where like, you know, an ace and a great hitter have this duel and it's like 15 pitches especially if it's in a big game and that feels tense and you feel it building. Otherwise, I'm, I'm with you. Actually, I would not, this would not bother me. The great that I, that I, I guess I consider that a, uh, a popular opinion, opinion, opinion approved. <laughs> well, you didn't fight me on my, uh, my pitcher win take. So I'm going to assume that you agree with me now that Mike, Mike Petriello is now in favor of pitcher win sold. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure I made fun of you for, for coming out <laughs> for pitcher wins on the, on the Stackcast podcast here. I'm, I'm so excited to get to our guest. This is not a live guest. I recorded this earlier today. Um, we, I'm not sure where to start here. So we had, uh, Matt and I had talked on a show or two ago about um, like our first games and how we became fans of teams and everything. And I thought to myself, well, you know who I know who's got a, a really interesting opinion about their first game seeing their favorite team is my 99-year-old great uncle, Frank Petriello. And I was going to, tell the story tonight. And then I thought to myself, well, you know what? Frank's probably at his house by himself, bored out of his mind right now. I bet you he'd love to talk to me and tell me the story. So I called him up and um, I asked him, you know, a couple of questions about baseball. Frank turned 99 uh, last week, actually, on March 16th. He uh, is the older brother of my late grandfather, John. This is on my father's side. Um, Frank was born in Italy. I'm just giving you some necessary backstory here because uh, there's there's a story to the story here. Frank was born in Italy in 1921. He came to America when he was like, I don't know, six or seven um, and lived in New Jersey and still lives in New Jersey for basically his entire life. And yet he is a Cubs fan. Uh, and that's where it gets interesting. Um, I, as you'll hear, I, I got part of the story wrong. I thought that Frank um, became a Cubs fan because when he was in the Navy during World War II, uh, and by the way, he is a bonafide war hero. If you look up the story of the USS Bunker Hill uh, and the, the battle that, uh, you know, 300 men were lost, he was on that boat. There's a book written about it. Um, but anyway, I thought that when he went to this game in 1942 um, and got into the game for free, as he will explain, that was what made him a Cubs fan. That's what I've always thought. And it turns out I was wrong. That was just his first time at Wrigley. He'd apparently been a Cubs fan since 1933. And uh, as you'll see, he remembers so much about the Cubs when he told me about the first game he went to at Wrigley in 1942, as he was talking, I looked it up on Baseball Reference, and uh, he nailed like half the lineup. It's 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 incredibly impressive, um, just how much recall he has for here. So please uh, take a listen uh, to my 99-year-old great uncle Frank Petriello. 
so you were uh, you were born in Italy, obviously. You and my my grandfather, right. your younger brother. Uh, you came right. over to America when you were what about eight years old, right? Right, right. And um, I want to know, you know, you're a lifelong Cubs fan, but that didn't happen until you were in the service. So I'm curious, before you even got uh, well, 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 no, no, no. Let's back up a little bit. No, no, no. Uh, I was a, I've been a Cub fan since 1933. Oh, 19. Well, how did that happen? Growing up in New Jersey. Yes, uh, we they used to have these um, uh, uh, cards that uh, they used to give up with, with bubble gum, and uh, oh, I, I saved a whole lot of them there, and I just got uh, attached to uh, uh, to the Cubs. Well, was there a particular player? Uh, well, yeah, there was. There was a guy named Stan Hack. He was a third baseman. I, I I had played a little bit of sandlot uh, baseball third base, so he became my hero. <laughs> well, so when uh, when you were growing up in New Jersey, did you get the chance to go see maybe the Cubs come to the Polo Grounds and play the Giants? <laughs> no, 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 couldn't afford that. No, <laughs> that, that, but that came later on. Then we used to. Uh, my buddy and I, we we, we hitchhiked on and, and, and Route 46 and uh, went over the George Washington Bridge, walked across it, across the nickel at that time, and went to the Polo Grounds uh, to see the to see the Cubs. Uh, oh, we did that many times. Well, so I I had for all these years understood that you were a Cubs fan because of your trip to Wrigley Field. Uh, well, no, 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 no. <laughs> Wrigley Field came came later. Oh no, no, that was when I was in service. I got to go to to, to Wrigley Field because I, I I was stationed at the Great Lakes uh, training station uh, in in uh, Illinois. So, what uh, when you went to that game at Wrigley? What year was this? Uh, 1942. 1942. And that was your first trip to Wrigley, right? Right, yes. And so th- this is the part of the story I remember. Did, what happened when you went to go purchase a ticket? Uh, I, I went to purchase it. I got up early in the morning and went to stand in line to, to purchase a ticket. One of the ushers came, came up to me and says, what are you doing here? I thought he was questioning, uh, you know, my 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 uh, leave papers, uh, 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 that, uh, because it was uh, unusual to see a, a service man uh, out that early. So uh, I says, I'm, I'm waiting to buy a ticket. And he says, well, look, he says, go over to gate number, I forget, uh, so-and-so, and servicemen get in free there, uh, uh, first come, first serve, and until it's full. Uh, the price, I remember at the time, was a dollar ten, which was a great deal of money in view of the fact that I was making $50 a month in, 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 in the Navy. And uh, uh, so I, I went there and uh, uh, I, I got in right, right in the, uh, at, the, at the fence, and uh, which allowed me to buy a, a, an extra two, three or four hot dogs at that time. There, I think they were, I think it was ten or fifteen cents or something like that. Uh, what what else do you remember about that game? Because I want to see if I can I can find well, the box score. Uh, 
uh, okay, the Cubs were playing the uh, the Cardinals. Uh, it, it was a double. It was a doubleheader. Now this was a 1942 Cardinals. Oh my goodness! You know they were, <laughs> they had the uh, uh, Stan, uh, Stan Musial was the uh, uh, I think he was a rookie that year, and they had the the uh, they had a, a, a brother battery team. Uh, Cooper's, I think, was was their last name, and uh, that earned, uh, Eno Slaughter was in, in the outfield, and uh, 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 I think Johnny Hop was at first base, and, uh, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and the Cubs were oh, they were terrible that year. <laughs> they, they played a double header that day. A double header at that time meant you 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 pay one price and you saw two games, and. Uh, 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 they lost both games. Do, do you remember uh, what month or what time of year it was? It was in. It, it had to be in September of 1942. It was a Sunday afternoon. Uh, I, uh, I I used to remember the date. I I it was it was late in the season. Yeah. Well, you know what? That's that's pretty good memory because they uh, they only played the Cardinals at home once in September, and it was a Sunday. Because uh, yeah. it had gotten rained out the day before, and that actually September twentieth. That's my birthday, so that's the day. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that that would be about the time. Yes. So you yeah. st- you stayed for both games. Oh, absolutely! I, oh God, yes. So I had I had waited all those years to 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 go there, and I I, I went out went and stayed for, till the last out. The uh, so I have I found the box score here. All right. Uh, the oh first, really? The first game, uh, the Cubs lost one nothing. Uh, oh. Your your hero Stan Hack led off and he went 0 for four. And, yeah, he, he was the leader of man, right? Yeah, and uh, yeah, Stan Musial hit cleanup. Uh, yeah, Chris is a great memory. Walker Cooper was a catcher for the Walker Cardinals. Cooper, yes, yeah. yeah, and Mort and Mort Cooper was the uh, was the, the was the pitcher. No, no, not in that game. No, I, I, I don't in, think. in that in that game actually. Yeah, he in, threw a, in that game. He threw a shutout. Oh. Okay. I'm I'm yeah. I'm impressed by your memory of this this game. Uh, the second game, uh, the Cubs actually won that one, three nothing. They won. Oh, did they? Yeah, and uh, let's see, Stan Hack uh, also let off. He he scored a run, and uh, uh-huh. yeah, you were right. This Cubs team was was pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, you said they, they they won the second game. They won three three nothing. Yeah. Oh, who, who was the pitcher? For the Cubs, it was uh, Claude Passeau, who I'm not familiar with. Claude, Claude Passeau, yes, yes. yes. I remember the, him, yes. For the for the Cardinals, Max Lanier. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and what, what's yeah. funny now is uh, I can look up the uh, how long the games took. All right, The first game took one hour, 55, and the second one was 207. <laughs> you don't you don't see that these days, do you? <laughs> uh, no, not so much. And let's see, uh, yeah. they were well attended. The the uh, and and there was a, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, the the Cardinals had a had a, had a shortstop, uh, Marty Marion, a big tall guy. Uh, big tall guys like that didn't usually play shortstop in those days. Marty Marion, yeah, he played shortstop in both games, and he was listed. Yeah, yeah I mean, listed here as a six foot two, which I guess for the time was pretty yes. big for shortstop. Yeah. 
Yes, yeah. And uh, uh, they had a uh, third base. The, the, the Cardinals uh, had a had a, had a Polish kid. Uh, Whitey Kurowski. Whitey Kurowski, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Right. And I, I think and I think uh, uh, Jimmy Brown played the uh, uh, second, second base. Frank, I can barely remember what I did last week, and you're remembering the whole lineup from the 1942 St. Louis Cardinals. Yeah, uh, and and they had a, a center fielder, a guy named Terry Moore. Oh, he was a great fielder. He was as good an outfielder as, as Joe DiMaggio. Couldn't hit like Joe DiMaggio, but he 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 was a great center center fielder. Terry Moore. It doesn't look like he played in this doubleheader. They had uh, Harry Walker. Playing center Harry field. Walker, yeah, well, yeah, oh, yeah. Um, but I think he and, maybe just had the day off because Terry Moore did play 130 games that year. Oh, yeah, and uh, oh yes, <laughs> I remember it well. I am, I am so impressed. So, um, you know, then you ended up, you know, you got out of the service, you went home, had a family, uh, all of it. Uh, right. Did you, did you ever think you were going to actually live long enough to see the Cubs win? No, uh, I thought that was in 1945. They won. They won the pennant, and that was that was the war. Those were the war years, and the year 1945. The Cubs won the pennant, and they played Detroit. And I think they went down to the last game uh, and, and lost. Uh, yeah, they lost in seven and then never got yeah. back for many, many years. <laughs> uh, so when, when they won in 2016, I was I was there. I was very fortunate to, to be at the park. Um, and I, I remember. Oh, talking, yeah. Oh, 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 yes. We celebrated that, that night. Yes. Well, that's what I wanted to ask. Did you did you and it was a late game because it went extra innings and all. Did you stay up till the very end of that? Oh, right to the last out. Yes. We were at my son's house and uh, he opened up a couple of bottles of champagne. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I, I remember calling you and just being so happy that uh, that you'd, you'd been able to see them win after having followed that team. For oh yes, yes. I, I I didn't think I, I I would make it. You know, like I say, I, I've been a fan since 1933. In 1935, the Cubs won the uh, won the pennant, and they were playing at Detroit, and uh, I think it was the either the sixth or seventh game. Uh, uh, they, they, the, the, the Cubs, uh, they were tied in, 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 one, one, in, the, in, in the last game that they played there. And uh, uh, Stan Hack, the, the, the score was tied. Stan Hack led off with a triple. And I, I remember listening to, uh, on, 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 on radio. Actually, it wasn't radio. It, it, was, it was called the Crystal Set in those days. Uh, but that, that goes way, way back. Uh, anyway, Hack led off with, with a triple with no outs. And, uh, and I, I think they were behind one run. <laughs> and and, and then... Uh, so I, I, they, 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 if they scored, you no, know, they, they would tie the, tie the game, and three guys went down. I, I don't know, swinging or 
put out and all that. And I was 14 years old and listening to it, and I felt so bad that I wanted to cry. That in those days, you know, this was that was the John Wayne era, era. You know, men didn't cry. You know, crying was all right for for, for women and children, but not, not not for men. But I really wanted to cry that 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 day that that he didn't score. I, I, looked, and, 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 I, I looked it and, up. And, and, Sorry, go ahead. And, and, and then the, uh, one of the sports writers. He, Telling the story uh, all the years later, and he says, and Stan Hack is still waiting at third base for somebody to bring him in. You, uh, I, I looked this up while you were talking, and uh, you you nailed it perfectly. So, game six, top of the ninth. Oh, inning. the game, yeah, yeah. yeah. Top, top of the ninth inning, uh, game is tied yeah. at three. Uh, Stan oh. Stan Hack leads off first pitch triple, just as you said. Uh, yes. Billy Jurgis strikes out. Larry French grounds out, and Augie Gallon flies out, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and then the bottom of the ninth, uh, let's see, Mickey Cochran singled, Charlie Garinger grounded out, and then Goose Gosling uh, drove in Mickey Cochran with the World Series winning run, and that was that. Yes, 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 yeah, 1935, that's, that's right. That's, that's yes. impressive. Who, who is your favorite player on the current Cubs? Uh, well, that really don't don't happen. Uh, I, 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 what's his name? Uh, uh, Bryant. Oh, Chris Bryant. Yeah, he's he's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I just read an article oh, not too long ago that he may uh, uh, he becomes a free agent. Uh yes, yeah. After and, two more years. And that he, he 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 may not sign with the Cubs. I I, I thought he, he you know he had a lot of potential, but. Uh, I don't know. He used to, he, he used to uh, strike out a lot. Yeah, well, him and everybody else in baseball right now. <laughs> yeah, true, true. Uh, Frank, I'm, yeah. I'm so impressed by uh, how much you have remembered from these games from 60, oh. 70, 80s years ago. It's it's really cool. <laughs> oh, God. Yes. Oh. Well, listen, thank you. Thank you for, for oh, talking to me about my, this. It was my pleasure. Yeah. All right, you, listen, you take care of yourself. We'll speak soon, okay? Okay. All right, we'll keep in touch. All right, take care. So I obviously really enjoyed uh, speaking to Frank about all of that, but my favorite part, I think, uh, came at the end. Uh, as you heard, I asked him you know, who he likes on the current Cubs, and he mentioned Chris Bryant, uh, but complained that he strikes out too much, which, of course, everybody does. But I, I compared Chris Bryant's uh, career totals to Stan Hack, who, as Frank said, was his favorite Cubs player back in the day, the five-time All-Star, was it? I guess Chris Bryant's predecessor as Cubs third baseman, like 20 guys removed. Uh, Stan Hack played parts of 16 seasons, never once struck out more than 42 times. That was his high in a season. In 8,500 plate appearances, he struck out 466 times. Chris Bryant, meanwhile, his strikeout totals are 199, 154, 128, 107, 145. He is indisputably a better player than Stan Hack. Uh, but Frank wasn't wrong. He does strike out a lot more. And I guess that tells you a little something about how much uh, the game has changed. What, what did you say was the first year of uh, Frank became a, a Cubs fan? Hey, he says he says 1933. That's what he says. Well, this is this is perfect. 1933 was also the final year of Joe Sewell's career. Joel Sewell, Joe Sewell in the final year of his career for the New York Yankees had 606 plate appearances and struck out four times. <laughs> 
<laughs> four times. Uh, do you have Joe Sewell's lineup in front of you still? Yes, I do. What, what was his actual triple slash? That season? Yes. Or for his career? Uh, for that season where he struck out four times. That season, it was 273, 361, 323. Earlier in his career, he had... I mean... His career totals from 1925 to 1933, his strikeout totals were 4, 6, 7, 9, 4, 3, 8, 3, 4. Like, I know it was a different game, right? A different world. It was not integrated. It was all day games and a million other things. But how many of those balls that, that weren't strikeouts uh, were just like weakly grounded out up the middle? You know, like if you swung a little harder and you struck out a little more and you got more doubles, you'd probably have been better. <laughs> Like if you if you or I were like put in charge of a team in like 1930, we'd probably be able to build a team that won 154 games. I think. <laughs> my new favorite Joe Sewell stat. I always thought his strikeout totals were my favorite stat. But my new favorite Joe, Joe Sewell stat is that in 1927, um, when he finished 10th in the AL MVP voting, mind you, hitting 316, 382, 424 for the uh, <laughs> for the Indians, he had three stolen bases and was thrown out 16 times. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, your point, that that, 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 that furthers your, uh, your point about us being able to build a team that would win 150 games. Yeah, I think what you just did is we're all like desperate for baseball things to talk about is come up with uh, an idea, which is our favorite weirdo stat lines ever. <laughs> Consider it a challenge. Something uh, like that. <laughs> Um, that that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. Thank you to my my great uncle Frank. He'll get a kick out of knowing that all you fans uh, listen to his voice. We'll be back in a couple of days with our friend and colleague Will Leach. Will and I drafted uh, each of the last twenty five World Series winners, and somehow I don't know how this happened. I landed all three San Francisco Giants teams. Hooray for me! So check back for that. Thanks for listening. This is the MLB.com Statcast podcast. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.